0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, is Pierre Polyev playing the populist card in the conservative leadership race? And does Jean Charest's idea of the CPC still exist? Well, Dr. Laurie Turnbull joins us to discuss all of that. Ontario's top doc is urging people to mask, but he won't bring back the mandate. Not just yet, anyway. And sanctions over Ukraine are starting to affect Russia's economy. Marvin Ryder, professor at the DeGroote School of Business of Grasso University, will talk to us about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml what's going on with the leadership race for the uh, federal conservative party uh which seems to be turning into a per- two-person battle i know it's early days but it seems to be pierre Polyev against uh, jean chere at this stage and uh, mr chere of course made headlines over the weekend by suggesting that mr pauliev should be disqualified from the race uh, because of some of his uh, stands on issues, such as, uh, the, well, the truck convoy that uh, took so much time in Ottawa, of course, in February. Charest sure was asked, though, uh, Mr. Paulier did not break any laws, so why should he be disqualified from the race? As Mr. Charest sure had to say. What I'm saying is that he's uh, if he wants to be the leader of a party and if he wants to be the chief legislator of the country, Rick, he cannot go out there and support people who are breaking laws and supporting blockades. I mean, it's that simple. You can't make laws, you can't change laws, and then break laws. And you can't put yourself above the law. And it's a, it's a very important principle of leadership if you're in that uh, position of privileged position of being a member of parliament. And, uh, and that's, that's what I uh, feel, uh, that's what I've practiced all my life. And, uh, and I, I think it's true in
1: this leadership race.
0: Uh, Mr. Polyev, of course, has responded in kind. Uh, it, it's interesting to see the, the back and forth that's going on. We're going to talk about that and lots more in uh, federal politics uh, with our first guest. Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, always a pleasure. Hope you've had had a good weekend.
2: Hi, Bill. Yeah, I did. And yesterday yeah, I, I had did. to travel, so I couldn't join you yesterday. And then I'm in Calgary, what? and it snowed last night. So that part's not amazing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, well, and apparently uh, Winnipeg, Alberta, everybody—it's still winter out there, and you yeah, guys can have yeah. it for, for the time being. As far as I'm concerned, I put the snow shovel away <laughs> on Saturday, and it's—it's it's not coming out, no matter what happens here. Let's
2: Fair let's enough. talk
0: about this uh, this race if we could. Uh, a lot of concern about exactly what's going on here and uh, and the way the race is being run. We've heard a lot from Charette and Pauliev over the last little while. Uh, I, I got to ask you, Patrick Brown has been silent, which kind of surprises me. He seemed to be a pretty active member, and we're told that he's a, a political go-getter. Uh, is Why is he in the weeds right now?
2: Yeah, so I'm thinking that he's probably sort of doing the thing that people know him to be very good for, which is good at. sorry, which is making the calls, you know, signing the members up. Like, he's kind of doing this quietly, because the first three months, you know, really are about making sure that you've got enough people who believe in your candidacy, they're going to come out and buy a membership, they're going to show up and vote for you later. And sometimes that kind of work is quiet, right? Like you can do that by doing what Pierre Polyev is doing, holding rallies and getting a whole lot of attention and things like that. But I think Patrick Brown's approach to it his strategy is going to be different and this again is is something that has worked for him in the past he he does this kind of in a quiet way he goes to smaller events that that you know bring people out and he makes a good impression and he he has won a leadership doing that before and so I wouldn't count him out but it's possible he's he's worried about you know peaking too early because this is a long race this is a long runway to get to September 10th but he's got a name recognition issue, right? Like outside of Ontario, people don't necessarily know Patrick Brown all that well. And so it's possible that, you know, a few, a few rallies, a few, you know, come on out and get to know me events that attract attention to him wouldn't be so bad at this point.
0: Let's talk about Pierre Polyev, who is the perceived frontrunner at, at this point. And, and by the way, that can be as much a curse as a can of blessing as we've talked about in the past. Because in the last, I guess, three or four now conservative leadership races, the frontrunner has not won. But obviously, Mr. Polyev thinks he's going to turn that around. This It's very much of a, a populist kind of campaign that he seems to be running, Laurie.
2: A hundred percent. Yeah. So, I mean, I agree with you. There's, there's a concern there that the front runner is, end, is going to end up not being the winner, right? And it's because the, of the way the ballot is structured and the number of candidates that are on this thing. Like, you can put, I think we can sort of put some of these candidates into at least two different categories, like some of them that are kind of stand a real chance of winning at this point and we and we could put them in a kind of front runner category or at least a you know that kind of loose group and then there are other people who I think probably the expectation that they would win is low but because of the ranked ballot and because you know whoever if no one comes first on the first ballot the least popular candidate is dropped off their votes are redistributed it matters who comes last, It, you know, probably, right? Unless somebody locks us up on the first vote, which is gonna be really hard. And so there's a sense of, of disruption, there's a sense of unpredictability. And so, I mean, I think for Polyev, he's running a kind of campaign that he'd love to win on, win on the first ballot. I think Sharae's tactics are to try to make Polyev seem like, you know, somebody who is doing the wrong thing, he thinks he's above the law, he's trying to turn people against Polyev so that nobody puts him second. If Chiray is going to win this thing, it's going to be with down-ballot support. Same with Patrick Brown. So for, they're trying to make Polyev sound like, oh no, you know, you either love him or hate him. He's an extremist, he's a polarizer, he's a divider, that kind of thing. But I mean, I think it's possible that because Polyev has so much time to grow the party the way he is, and the messages he's using, I mean, I, I agree with Michael Gardner who says he's, he's Trump, best right like that's the type of campaign yep. that he's running here he's he's appealing to things that don't necessarily break down on party lines
0: and it's the same style i know some people bristle when you try to draw the, the parallel between trump and pauliev's campaign but you know he's basically saying freedom which is a, a catch-all in politics you know i'm gonna mm-hmm. i'm gonna give you more freedom uh, you know it's it's you know We've seen people in other parts of the world that are, are, have had freedom taken away from them, and this ain't it uh, here in Canada. But but they're upset. A lot of people are ticked off at a whole bunch of things right now. They're upset about the price of gas. They're upset about the price of housing. And he's basically saying it's all Justin Trudeau's fault. And I, if you beat, you know, elect me and I beat him, then all your problems are going to go away. It's, it's a populist motion. I mean, it's not realistic. But I guess it's, it's a typical situation of a politician that's telling people what they want to hear, not what they need to know.
2: Absolutely. And I mean, you're right, like freedom is a kind of very convenient, catch all, vague word in politics. And hey, you know, who doesn't like freedom? And so it's easy to kind of use that word as a way to appeal to people in a broad way who don't necessarily agree with one another on everything, you know, not at all, right? But people who have very different stances on different aspects of political life can come together possibly around the word freedom, especially if we don't drill down too deeply into what that means. But he's harnessing a couple of things here. He's harnessing frustration over restrictions and mandates attached to COVID-19. So people who are tired of wearing their mask. They're tired of being told what to do, whether they can go to them to a shopping mall or a restaurant or not. That sort of frustration with you know kind of the feeling of too much government presence in our lives. And that's something that has come to the fore over the COVID-19 period. He's also harnessing, I think A lack of trust in more traditional political institutions. So he's not talking very much about the party, about conservatism. In fact, he had a video that I can't find anymore, but he had a video where he was talking about the ideological spectrum really doesn't apply. And that's BS that people talk about in intro political science classes, but it's not a real thing. He's trying to appeal very broadly. That's the populist thing, but it's the, you know, we, he, he's talking to people who feel like they are not living the kind of life that they should, given how hard that they work and the money that they make. And now look, right, like there's no, the gas prices out of control, food prices out of control. The the housing market is totally volatile. And, you know, where is the security? Where is, you know, the, like, where, where are you getting the return for what you're doing in terms of a contribution? I think Polyev must have been really happy to see the federal budget, which does nothing for anybody in the short term, right? Like it's not mm-hmm. talking about a relief from carbon, uh, you know, like gas tax carbon tax any of that like it and so he's really talking about your bottom line and he's appealing to people who are frustrated with the status quo
0: and and i understand that because there's a lot of people that are ticked off about that and he's tapping into that that anger and that frustration right now uh but again uh, he's he's like i say the fact that i you know justin trudeau's a big guy he can handle himself i'm not worried about that i don't think anybody has to go to his defense in situations like this but inflation is not Canadian problem. It's an international problem. Uh, you know, supply chain issues are an international problem. Uh, but you know, when people are angry, they want somebody to blame, and uh, and he's giving them somebody.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I I think he's been making the arguments for a long time, even before this race was was in motion, even before he was a, a you know a candidate, even though even before he expressed interest in the role he plays as finance critic in the Conservative Caucus. He's been talking a long time about. Just inflation, and this being a you know a Trudeau-made problem, and you know nobody needs me to tell, to point out. Lots of economists and other people have pointed out that this is not true. But it, you're right. When people are frustrated at something, they want someone to to hold a bag for that, and that speaks to the accountability that is the Prime Minister's office, whether he likes it or not. Right? Like he's even if inflation is not his fault, he's still the Prime Minister. He still has to account for how he's going to manage it. And Polyev has been very effective at parking all of that at Trudeau's doorstep.
0: So let me ask you then, you mentioned earlier, uh, this is going to be a ranked ballot. That's the way the Conservatives have elected leaders in the past. In other words, here's your first choice. Is who among the candidates now, uh, and those supporters of those candidates, who would have Pierre Polyev as their second choice?
2: It's interesting, right? Like, I mean, I I don't know. um, It's possible that people who are thinking um, from a more socially conservative perspective, it's possible that Leslyn Lewis voters would put Pierre Polyev second. But I don't think Patrick Brown's voters will. I don't think Jean Charest's voters will. I think he's basically telling them not to. Like he's he's coming out so hard against Polyev that that might actually um, end up being an issue for Charest in the sense that people who are going to support Pierre Polyev don't care what Jean Charest has to say about Pierre Polyev. So I'm not sure that this kind of polarized, um, you know, me or him, Polyev is a completely unseemly guy who shouldn't be anywhere near this office. I'm not sure that strategy is going to work for Sharae.
0: And, and the reason I'm asking, of course, and we're a long way away from this. And it's not until you know September that these guys are actually going to make their decision, but mm-hmm. we saw this with Maxime Bernier when he was running for the leadership, he looked like he was the, the runaway leader for this thing. And he didn't get it on the first ballot, but he didn't grow. And Andrew Shear did, and that's eventually, after 17 ballots, that's eventually how this turned out. And I, I guess the question I'm asking is, can Paul Leif grow grow if, if, if this leadership goes to second, third, fourth ballots?
2: Yeah, I mean, I really think that no matter what he does, because Jean Charest is, is, you know, a pretty serious candidate, and so is Patrick Brown, I know we don't hear it right now, but I believe that he is doing the things that he does to make, uh, you know, to make his candidacy work. And so I think we're going to have enough competition in this that a first ballot win is not likely outcome for anybody and so Polyev is going to need down ballot support the problem with um, him relying on possibly support from Wesleyan Lewis's supporters is that she's not going to drop off fast enough right so like he needs to be talking to you know no offense but he needs to be talking to the lesser known candidates who are going to be the first and second and third off the ballot so that their votes are the ones that are reapportioned in a direction that looks favorable to him so Polyev is is, again no offense talking to the Lesla to the Leon Alisleps Right. To see how those how, how that vote is going to shake down. So there are disruptors in this race. There are people who are are really probably not going to win, but they are definitely able to have an effect on the outcome. And I think that's probably why they're running.
0: You mentioned the budget just a second ago. We're going to get into that in further detail a little bit later on in the show. The, the, the joy about burning for the leadership of any political party, of course, is you don't have to talk policy because that's already been decided. So it's, you're, Rob, you're the, the candidate itself. But you just mentioned the, the, the federal budget here and the liberal budget. Um, this has got to be, I, I would think, welcome fodder for all of the candidates right now to be able to take a bite out of what the, the government's doing here. Because as you say, uh, there's no short-term wins here right now, so frustrated people are going to remain frustrated
2: absolutely there are no short term wins there is also opportunity no matter where you are on the political spectrum and what your priorities are there's a way for you to criticize this budget in earnest right so even if you are a housing advocate you're saying you know where it where like is this enough on supply for supply in terms of affording, affordable housing of course not um, what about 40 grand, right? Like, why isn't it 60 grand? Why isn't it 80 grand, given that the cost of housing and the average cost of a home in Canada is over $800,000. Like, and so you can, you can point to this budget and say, yeah, she's trying to be balanced, right? She's trying to kind of pivot and come back to pre-COVID spending measures so that we can get a little bit more normal in how we're managing our finances in the country, but it doesn't really go far enough for anybody. And the government is really asking is, you know, for some for some trust, for some forgiveness, for some let us do this over three years. We can't do this in one year. And so that's kind of gives some context, I think, to the liberal NDP agreement for three years is that some of the things they want to accomplish, they're going to take three years to do it. But I, I honestly think that this liberal NDP coalition, no, not coalition, I'm sorry, the liberal NDP deal is also about looking ahead to the conservative, you know, to what the conservatives might do in the next election. And they're positioning se- themselves against that. And I think, you know, that's that's part of the calculation of this deal.
0: Interesting to see how this rolls out over the next little while. As always, Laurie, thanks so much. Enjoy the snow in Calgary, and uh, we'll talk again next week for sure.
1: Sounds <laughs> like a plan, Bill. Thanks.
0: You betcha. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: It was uh, an interesting day at Queens Park yesterday. Uh, the uh, chief medical officer made his first statement in, uh, I guess, a few weeks now. It did say he wasn't going to do any of these. But uh, when uh, Kieran Moore did finally stepped to the microphone, well, we found out that the Ontario government is going to be expanding eligibility for PCR testing for COVID-19. But when it comes to masks, uh, the good doctor says he recommends them wear them, but he's not going to reimpose the mandate. Global's Andrew Graham has more details.
1: Dr. Kieran Moore says mandates may come back to indoor public spaces if a new variant emerges, if rising cases threaten the health care system, or potentially during the winter months. As for bringing mandates back to schools, Moore says there's not enough risk at this time. There's been no significant
3: rise in the risk of children in the intensive care unit, so of all of Ontario, 2.75 million children, there's two in the intensive care unit right now.
1: Moore adds the province is reviewing its plan to lift remaining mask mandates in settings such as long-term care and public transit. Absolutely considering maintaining it. Our teams uh, drafting it will present
3: that to government uh, and the government will make the final decision but uh, that, to me that makes tremendous sense to maintain
1: it. Up to 600 people may be in the ICU at the peak of the sixth wave but more says Ontario has the capacity to handle it. Andrew Graham, Global News.
0: Ah, it must have been an interesting day listening to the to the doctor and, and some of the rationalizations. To uh, bring us up to speed on what's going on, uh, please do welcome back to the program Allison Smith. Allison, of course, is the founder of Queen's Park today. Allison, great to have you back with us. Hope things are going well for you these days.
3: Hi, Bill. Yeah, great to be back.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, what uh, Dr. Moore had to say yesterday. Uh, strongly recommends wearing a mask if you're going to meet a crowd. Even the Premier, I guess, reiterated that yesterday. But they will not bring back the mandate, even though the numbers are up. And this is a, a more contagious uh, variant. Uh, were you surprised by the announcement?
3: Um, not really. Uh, it seemed like something the province has really kind of committed to sticking to. Um, and we know, you know, Premier or sorry, uh, Dr. Moore gives recommendations. But a lot of this really does come down to Cabinet. And the Doug Ford government uh, really wants there to be no mass mandates, especially as they cruise into an election in just a couple weeks—less uh, than a month—the campaign will start. One thing I thought that was interesting, though, what that um, that Dr. Moore said is that you know we're not at the this sixth wave, as far as he knows and can tell, is kind of just starting. Um, and it won't kind of crest or uh, get to its peak until the middle of May or the end of May, which means right in the middle of the election campaign. So politically speaking, this looks like it might be a bit trickier for Doug Ford and the PCs than they hoped it to when or hoped it would be when they kicked this mandate a, a little while ago.
0: Well, and that's the thing that I, I get frustrated about is you know is this being driven by politics or policy? You know, the numbers are up. And and I heard uh, Health Minister Christine Ellie talking about this yesterday as well, as you guys were reporting. And she says, Well, we have the capacity. Well, what does that mean? We're going to have enough new cases to fill the capacity and then we'll start worrying about it? Is that the message we're getting here?
3: Um, Perhaps, yeah. Um, I think what the government's relying on um, and what they've kind of really relied on in the past is vaccines, which you know, is great. They're super effective. And one of the announcements that kind of came on side uh, alongside yesterday is expanding fourth doses for a bunch of groups of older people and, and people with uh, immunocompromising diseases. So I think they're hoping that, uh, you know, the more people get boosted up again. I mean, we remember the last big booster campaign Ontario embarked on was in December and January. It really hasn't been very long. Um, that, and, and we're kind of just going right back into that again, which is not to say it's a bad thing, but it seems to be the one tool that the, that the government can kind of push out when, when things get a little bit more hairy. The other thing they announced is that they're going to make uh, Paxlovid, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, realizing I don't know if I've ever said it out loud, Um, but that's (laughs) the the antiviral drug that uh, can really help alleviate COVID symptoms and and stop the disease from being dangerous in um, unvaccinated people, for example, or, or high risk people. Quite oddly, uh, it, the government has had uh, about 40,000 doses of this drug that it got from the federal government quite a while ago, I think two months ago. And uh, some enterprising reporters found out that that only 400 doses have been uh, administered or uh, prescribed so far. So that's pretty strange, considering this is kind of uh a bit of a wonder drug that for a while it was unclear whether canada would even be able to get any quick enough and we have them in ontario and nobody's taking them um which again is odd and and you know quite upsetting considering how many people have you know the numbers of people that are dying of covid aren't small there was a day last week that 37 people died like why haven't those people why weren't those people Offered this pa- Paxlovid drug, then um, if, I think their families could rightly be asking that question. Yep. Um, but with the government, you know, they say that's going to change, and pharmacies are going to have it uh, in the next couple days. So I guess that's another tool in the toolbox of trying to keep this under control.
0: You know, what this whole thing reminded me as I was watching this unfold yesterday, though, Allison. I remember a conversation you and I had, and I can't remember if it was the third or fourth wave, There've been so many of them, sadly, uh, but it was when, you know, the, the, the science table had given their projections about what was going to happen, and it was the Solicitor General at that point that said, well, we'll wait and see uh, if we attain those numbers. In other words, let's see if it gets as bad as they said, and then we'll respond, and, and that's what they, exactly what they did, and all of a sudden we had to shut things down again, and, and Uh, It just seems as if they're waiting for the worst case scenario as opposed to trying to be preventative about this. And I I get it. You're absolutely right. I mean, they know darn well the election's the first week of June and they don't want people walking around wearing masks because a lot of them don't want to do that anymore. That's, That's pretty clear. But at what cost? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, as these numbers continue to go up, and, and I get it, and okay, not everyone who gets COVID is going to go to the hospital, but they're going to be sick for a few days, uh, and that means they can't go to work, and that's going to have a problem for people that, oh, some of these places, these small businesses that you've been reporting on that still can't find employees to begin with, uh, now they're going to start losing people to sickness. I mean, they just these guys don't seem to consider the ramifications of these policies.
3: No, I agree, this really has been a pattern throughout the past two years or or more of the pandemic. Um, A a little bit of a wait and see approach and then really hard restrictions when things have ultimately gotten worse. Uh, I mean, on a hopeful note, I think what we uh, as Ontarians and and I guess uh, by extension the the provincial government has on our side right now is that it is spring. Uh, Might not feel like it every day, but... You know, by the June and end of May, it's going to be nice out and and people will be doing less stuff indoors, which we know is more dangerous. Kids are going to be out of school. So that should, you know, that's helped the last two summers. And I think it'll certainly help again. But maybe the concern we should all be uh, worried about down the line is, yeah, next fall and winter yet again. um, I mean, they can vaccinate us all. Uh, over and over again, Um, and maybe that's that's the <laughs> I don't know is that the best we can do? Well, it's, you wonder about it's, that, it's,
0: you know. And your your point's well taken. I understand. You know, it's going to get nicer eventually, and we are going to spend more time outside. But as long as this is is, and we already know because they told us again yesterday that this is much more contagious than the than the other variants that we've seen in the past. You know, the Leafs are in the playoffs this year. uh The Raptors are in the playoffs this year. Is the Scotia Bank Center going to be a, a super spreader? I mean, are people going to go there with no masks, and all of a sudden we're going to get huge outbreaks? I, I hope not but that's kind of what's happened in the past hasn't it
3: it's true and I mean you can remember back into you know December I think it was that they kept the Scotia Bank arena for example open briefly uh, but you had to wear your mask in your seat and you couldn't yep. and eat popcorn or hot dogs and I think uh, the government they they cracked down and closed everything in January and the heat got really high on the government and they've seemed to really just, forego kind of any of these public health restrictions that were sort of tinkering around the edges for lack of a better word which that doesn't mean they weren't effective um but uh the sort of smaller scale type things it really was kind of open everything back up and let us go at the same time i i i don't know it's just been going on for so so long and what we do know is that the government did really want this to be over by the election campaign and I guess we shall wait and see uh, if that's the case. And, and you know, if that's something, that even if things do get worse, will voters actually punish the government for that? Are there, you know, PC voters, how many PC voters or, or potential PC voters are on the government side with being um, sick of mass restrictions and sick of things being closed? Um, are they, they might, you know, people might continue to vote for the PCs because they're the party that they believe will keep things open. Whereas we have the liberals right now calling for the return of mass mandates in certain settings uh, and and the NDP uh, being a lot more cautious on that side too. So it really I think is going to depend on the the sentiment of the voters and whether they believe the government's putting them in danger or, or whether the government's finally letting them live their lives and that's something they like.
0: But you just touched on, I think, a key point to this. If, if the government is, is just hoping against hope, like you say, that they want this thing to go away in time for the election. Uh, what Dr. Moore told us yesterday, it's probably going to peak just around that time, uh, which means the numbers are going to be high. We don't know what that's going to cause. But, I mean, if a lot of people are going to get sick, even if they're not going to get hospitalized, uh, they're going to be ill. Uh, what kind of a mood is the public going to be in then? Uh, you know, Because it seems as if it's coming. And, and that Dr. Moore told us that yesterday as, he, as you were reporting. Uh we're, we're upset and concerned about it now. He says, this is just starting. This is not the middle of it or the end of it. It's just the beginning of what's happening in Ontario. It's a rather ominous message for the government, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is. And, and you know, he spoke about how uh, he thinks, I think six million Ontarians have been infected with Omicron over, since it uh, debuted in December. And that's a whole lot of people. And we know that people can get reinfected with it yet again. And I think you know that the one thing he did say that the that that he is considering recommending to the government that would be a bit of a change in their direction if they if they bite is keeping mask mandates, which are set to expire uh, on April twenty first, I believe, so next week, um, in hospitals, long term care homes, uh, homeless shelters, and transit. So those are that was supposed to be is supposed to be lifted. Moore seems to think that that might not be the best idea and and maybe that will stay. I mean, I think from everything we learned, unmasking long-term care homes seems uh, unwise in my opinion, but I mean, I'm no medical professional. So they, you know, the PCs could do something like that that shows they're doing a little and, uh, you know, without necessarily trampling on on people's freedoms uh, as they see them. Um, because, you know, the, most people in Ontario don't go into a long-term care home or a hospital every day. Uh, and my experience, you know, riding on transit in the city of Toronto is that most people are wearing masks anyways. And even though there is a mandate, if people don't, uh, nobody really says much. So keeping that status quo might be something the PCs can do to, to make themselves look a bit serious.
0: Uh, one other quick story I wanted you to touch on, if you could, and it had to do with testing. Because we don't do much of it in the province anymore, so even these uh, projections about the numbers are, are probably inaccurate, and, and they admitted that yesterday. But uh, you guys did uncover the story in Queen's Park that just 20% of the rapid tests went to Ontario's COVID hotspots. So uh, even at that point, I mean, they were not going to where they should have gone to try to get an idea as to what was going on. And you could make an argument that they, they've mishandled that as well. And perhaps that could have been uh, an area of prevention. But, uh, you know, I, they really just want this thing to be in the rear view mirror, don't they?
3: Yeah, uh, they, they certainly do. Yeah, that rapid test story that kind of looks back at, at last year of, of the yeah. period last year uh, when rapid tests were first being procured by the government, the federal government, and sent to Ontario. And yeah, it turns out that um, what, what people are saying was, uh, you know, political favoritism was used in deciding who got these tests. Like, for example, Ellis Don, a very large construction company, got... I don't know, I offered, uh, hundreds of thousands of them, whereas schools, public schools, basically got none. Um, other companies that have ties to the PCs or had, you know, uh, been involved with the PCs in the past also got lots. Private schools got lots of lots of tests, which uh, is certainly interesting because uh, public schools did not. Uh, oh. So you can see why that raises uh, eyebrows for the opposition at Queens Park and then likely parents. Um, But also at that time, we have to remember that that public health specialists were kind of telling people not to rely on on rapid tests. They were saying they weren't accurate enough and we shouldn't be using them and PCR tests were available. So it was kind of a different landscape, I suppose, of the pandemic that we're in now. But um, still the massive numbers that went to peculiar locations over others is... Uh, You know, again, kind of uh, uh, an example of uh, pandemic decision-making from the provincial government that (laughs) shows that maybe their priorities aren't, yeah, (laughs) questioning where their priorities are at.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Allison, uh, it's heating up there. I know that, uh, you know, they're they're heading toward the end of the session, but that just means we're heading into election season. So uh, I really appreciate you taking some time with us today. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon, okay? Cheers, you too. Take care, Allison Smith, the founder of Queens Park. Today, you're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to talk sanctions, and of course, ever since the uh, Russians invaded Ukraine some weeks ago, now uh, NATO and uh, the, well, the global community, frankly, have been responding by right, putting sanctions on, uh, including Canada, by the way. And uh, Canada is uh, announcing now that they are targeting Russia's defense industry with their latest round of sanctions over the invasion of uh, Ukraine. Karen Rebo has details.
3: Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie says the new measures impose restrictions on 33 entities in the Russian defense sector. She says the organizations have provided support to the Russian military and are therefore complicit in the pain and suffering from Vladimir Putin's unjustifiable war in Ukraine. The measures usher in asset freezes and prohibitions on listed entities including the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology and Integral SPB. Since Russia's attack that began February 24th, Canada has imposed sanctions on more than 700 individuals and entities from Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press.
0: Well, Vladimir Putin was responding to that the other day, uh, suggesting that Russia is too big and too strong uh, to be isolated by these sanctions, and uh, they will survive this. Joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, good morning. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Glad to be with you, Bill.
0: Uh, I'm sure the cover to not bear in uh, the Kremlin right now for Mr. Putin, if he wants a late night snack. But uh, how are all these other sanctions impacting the people of Russia?
1: Right. Well, Bill, if you don't mind, I'd like to come at this in a couple of different ways. First, yeah. this question of sanctions. Uh, while there have been votes held at the United Nations condemning Russia's actions, it has not been unanimous. Now, there are a handful of countries that you're not no surprise that they're good friends of Mr. Putin, for instance, Belarus, uh, North Korea is a supporter of them. But on the world stage, there are about 35 countries that have chosen to abstain, have chosen to abstain on almost all these votes, countries like India, uh, China, uh, Saudi Arabia. And so even though there are many, many, many developed nations that have imposed sanctions on Russia, it hasn't been universal. In other words, there's some leakage. Russia can get some goods from some countries and it's not a universal shutdown. Having said that to you, there's enough countries with sanctions that they are causing tremendous pain. Uh, A few quick examples. So you asked how the uh, the average Russian citizen is facing it. This feels very much like the situation in the 1960s and 1970s when you go to the grocery store and you find a lot of the cupboards are bare, the goods that you need to purchase Uh, or components to those goods you want to purchase just are not flowing into the country. Manufacturing entities have had to shut down because they can't get the parts they need to assemble different things. You mentioned the defense industry. This is a problem for Mr. Putin. If a plane has a problem, let's say as a Russian Air Force plane has a problem, they're not going to get a spare part from a Western country. They're actually going to have to cannibalize their existing planes to go from there. And I suppose the granddaddy of them all happened just about a week ago on April 4th. Russia had uh, debt repayments. Uh, And Russia hasn't defaulted, has not defaulted on any international bond in over 100 years. So trying to keep that tradition alive, last week on April the 4th, Russian tried to send the equivalent of 632 million U.S. dollars, but in rubles, roughly something like 4 trillion rubles to pay the debt. And the country companies who had that debt said, no, no, our agreement says you have to pay us in American dollars. Russia responded, well, I can't get to my, Russian, my uh, American dollar reserves. I've been blocked here, have some rubles instead. So they are technically in default. Now the kind of bonds they have give them 30 days to try to get out of default. Don't know if anything's going to happen in 30 days. And what Russia has already said is they plan to take the world's nations who've been imposing these sanctions to court, saying that it's not our fault we can't pay this debt, it's their fault. You, the people who loaned us money, you should be going after them. So there promises to be some interesting times ahead, but definitely Russia is hurting. Is there no
0: precedent for that, though, is there, Marvin? I mean, if a, if a country is being punished, I, I guess it's not the first time that Russia's had, had sanctions imposed upon them. Uh, you know, uh, Crimea comes to mind right the that, and, and frankly, Ukraine a few years before that, uh, there were sanctions uh, that were applied there, too. So, so for them, all of a sudden to say, well, it's not our fault. I mean, they they kind of bring them on, this onto themselves, don't they?
1: Right. Well, there's a couple of aspects of this, Bill. This is the the deepest set of sanctions we've ever seen imposed against Russia. I, I hate to say this out loud, but although we were all upset with the Russian annexation of Crimea, and yes, we imposed some sanctions. They were nothing like this. These are much deeper, much firmer, much broader than anything we've ever seen before. Now, the other one is the legal argument. So Russia's going to go to court to say, hey, it's not our fault we can't pay. Uh, those evil, Those evil Western companies are blocking us. But the comeback is going to be, yeah, we're blocking you because of a war that you started. You knew there were going to be consequences to your actions. You can't blame us for doing what you should have anticipated doing. Such an argument has never been tested in a world court, so that's why I'm saying we have some interesting times ahead. As you know, in these sort of situations, the one group of people who always get paid will be the lawyers.
0: Uh, you mentioned some of the countries that are are not uh, subscribing to the to the sanctions that are, and you mentioned India. Not coincidentally, I guess uh, President Biden met with President Modi yesterday, but it, by it Zoom meeting, I assume, because they're not going to obviously do a face to face. But i got to figure, Marvin, part of that discussion was, hey, what do you think you're doing? I mean, because they're still buying uh, oil from Russia, aren't they?
1: Yes, they are. Uh, And they were hoping to buy Russian grain. Uh, India, again, uh, a very populous country, well over one and a half billion people who live in India, they do not grow enough food to support their own. And so they historically have been buying uh, wheat and other kinds of grains from Ukraine and from Russia. Um, those grains are, are still there. I mean, farmers who grew them last year still have silos full of grain in Russia, but the problem was that Russia couldn't sell them to other places. So India has been negotiating to buy those. And, and so the question is going to be, well, if you want us to not buy them, are you going to make up the difference? Oddly, Bill, this is one of the funny things about this. This could be great news for Canadian farmers who sometimes have faced so much grain out on the marketplace that we, we couldn't sell all of our what we could produce. This may be the, a different year. This may be the opposite. That we can sell every, every last kernel that we can grow. So these are the kinds of discussions that are going on. And China as well has been supporting Russia quietly. They have not condemned Russia in all this. In fact, there had been some thinking that maybe China would agree to accept rubles in exchange for some foreign currency and then give that foreign currency to Russia to pay its bills. We're just not quite sure what China's game is here either. You mentioned, well, two of
0: the biggies, probably two of the most populous countries in the world. Is uh, That's not going to sustain the Russian economy, though. It, it's nice to, to know that, I guess, from a Russian standpoint, uh, that they still have, uh, you know, those markets, accessibility to those markets right now. But you've just described some of the things that have already happened here, and that's only in a short period of time. That's, well, a month, month and a half or so. Yep. Uh, how much longer can this go on before the people say enough is enough?
1: Well, that is the, the million-dollar question here. Now, Bill, just to give it again and put a, put a few more, uh, uh, bit more meat on the bones here, uh, in the roughly now five weeks, six weeks since this uh, invasion in Ukraine has happened, the Russian economy has shrank about 15% shrank 15%. So let's make no bones about it. Russia's not in a recession. Russia is in a depression. Uh, Again, you see unemployment going up. They have prime interest rates, did hit 20%. They've come down a little bit now to 17% because the Russian central bank was trying to support the ruble, uh, and there's been a small recovery in the ruble at its worst. You'd get 120 rubles for an American dollar. That's improved somewhat. It's now 85 rubles to the American dollar. But nonetheless, this is, 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 you know, unprecedented to see this kind of shrinkage. The Russian economy, the last time it went down 15%, you have to go back to the early 1980s where we had a global recession. Even here in Canada, our prime interest rates shot up. So that's the better part of 40 years. There's a whole generation of Russians who've never seen conditions like this. So to your question, at what point are the Russian citizens going to say is enough is enough? Keep in mind that that Russia does not have a free press, that uh, Putin has blocked most of them. So the arguments being made is it's not us, it's them, it's this evil West. We told you not to trust the West. They're doing these things to us for who knows what reason. And they're not really even talking about Ukraine in any of this. So I don't know what the average citizen is hearing and how much their anger is at Putin versus how much their anger is at the West. Something is likely to happen the longer this goes, but just what will that be? Hard to know.
0: Uh, there is a caste structure in Russia uh, that, uh, you know, we've talked about in the past, and we mentioned the oligarchs and things of this nature. i got to assume, Marvin, that they're they're not hurting at this stage because we'd be hearing about it if they were invariably when there's something like this going on and there are shortages, have we saw this the first time the pandemic raised its ugly head here, people start hoarding. Is that happening over there?
1: Yes, uh, absolutely it is. Uh, And so uh, what people have done, and, and by the way, the other reason for hoarding is if you're not sure where your currency is going to go, then the worst thing you can do is hold on to your currency, convert it into something. Now, you know, you would normally think about going out and buying gold or buying, I don't know, cryptocurrency, but buying cans of beans, or buying loaves of bread and putting them in the freezer, that may be a good hedge against inflation, buy them when the going's good because they may not be available down the road. So we've seen that. Now, are the oligarchs hurting? Yes. The oligarchs uh, were used to a certain style of living that really allowed them to travel around the world unfettered, you know, I'll hop on my yacht in Monaco and I'll sail over here. Well, the yacht's been impounded, I don't get access to my bank accounts. Uh, there are certain countries I can't even travel to, so my life has changed. And and again, they are hurting. Now, at what point do they say to their friend, Mr. Putin? You know, again, enough is enough. I really do believe, Bill, that within the next month to six weeks, we may see movement on Russia's stated ambitions here. And by that, I mean they, their end game might be to say to Ukraine and to the world, "Okay, we'll stop all of this. You give us these two or three or four territories." mostly in the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, and we'll we'll stop the aggression. Okay, great, the, the war is over. But then what does that mean for the sanctions? Do we instantly turn them off if peace is declared? We may be seeing the beginning of a new Iron Curtain and a freezing of relations with Russia that goes back again to the 1950s and 60s. I'm not sure if peace was declared, this goes back to normal at all. Of course,
0: they are no longer part of the G8. They were told sent packing for past transgressions. It's, once again, the G7. Uh, There's talk among a number of members, though, uh, Marvin, of actually booting them out of the G20 now, too. What, if any, economic impact would that have?
1: Well, I'm not sure it would have impact just on its own. The G20 is a, a group of nations, the 20 largest economies in the world that meet periodically. This year, Indonesia is the president of the G20, and they were to host a summit in July of the G20, And there's tremendous pressure on them to not invite Russia. And in fact, there are various countries, Canada included, who said, if you invite Putin, we're not going, or if you invite the finance minister, we're not going. Um, And and poor Indonesia, who thought this would be their month to shine in July, they could show off their economy to the world. Uh, They've got a, a heck of a bind in here. And the other reason why they have a heck of a bind is that of those 20 nations, uh, there's no unanimity among the other 19. I would say it probably splits about 15 who would say don't invite Russia, but there would be four who would say, yes, do invite Russia. And given where Indonesia is, it is uh, one of the 20 biggest economies, and it's a growing economy, but um, it doesn't necessarily want to uh, offend the Russian bear, so to speak. So, uh, uh, you know, it's going to, again, that's going to be an interesting play out. I'm sure they're hoping that all of this is in the rearview mirror by then. But my point is, even if it isn't a rearview mirror, there's damage in Ukraine. There are billions of dollars of damage. Who's going to repay to, or pay to rebuild that? Who's going to sort out the war crimes questions? Even if peace were declared tomorrow, we've got years of mopping up to do. And I'm just not sure we're all ready for that.
0: Well, uh, I don't know how many listeners remember World War II, but, I mean, historically, anyway, uh, to fix Europe and to fix Germany, for that matter, uh, took an awful lot of money. The Marshall Plan took a long time to actually formulate uh, and then, of course, to be implemented. I mean, are we looking at something of that
1: magnitude? I think so. Uh, Now, the question would be, would there be a a new Marshall Plan, let's call it Marshall Plan 2.0, if Putin was still in power? So, again, I think from our standpoint, the best case scenario would be that somehow Putin was removed from power, he either fled, fled to another nation, sought, sought uh, uh, you know, uh, some sort of security at another nation or something, and then a new president comes in, someone who we felt we could work with, and then there would be terms dictated around the new plan. You don't want to leave Russia devastated, but you also don't want to leave Ukraine devastated and, and some path to normalization. Keep in mind, Bill, you know, the Second World War in the 1940s, that's roughly 75, 80 years ago. Germany, who was the aggressor in that war, is now one of the dominant economies in the world. They have bounced back, and we let them bounce back. And, of course, they have a different kind of leadership today than they had during the Second World War. That's the kind of thing you'd want to see to support a Marshall Plan, but you would not have a new Marshall Plan if Putin was there, because all you'd say is, we're going to rebuild them, and then they're going to come attack somebody else and— two or three years. We don't want that.
0: Exactly. Marvin, great talking with you again. Thanks so much for this today.
1: Glad to be with you, Bill.
0: Take care. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, of course, at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 CHML.